0: I imagine that most of you saw this uh, in February, the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 51. Going to go down in one of the greatest comebacks of all time. Uh, New England Patriots were down 25 points. The Atlanta Falcons were already celebrating. I mean, it's like, there's no one coming back from this, right? Well, they underestimated the uh, Patriots. In fact, they did come back in overtime win. Uh, not only did it seal it as one of the great games, but it, it perhaps basically underscored that Tom Brady... If, if not the greatest, is certainly one of the finest quarterbacks to ever play in the NFL. For Brady, by this time now, he has five Super Bowl wins, four MVPs uh, in the Super Bowl. Uh, really, Brady is an interesting guy, pretty private, but uh, there was, in 2005, already Tom Brady is very successful. He did an interview at 60 Minutes with uh, journalist Steve Croft. Uh, in this interview, I don't know if they paid him a bunch of money or they fed him some good food or whatever, but he was really transparent, and I actually got to see this. And when they were doing this interview, it became apparent that Brady thought that there was something that was lacking in his life. And you're like, you got to be kidding. <laughs> what, what possibly is lacking in Tom Brady's life? And listen to what he said. So this is Brady. He goes, you know, why do I have three Super Bowl rings? And still think there's something greater out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what life is all about. I reach my goal, my dream, my life, me. I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't this. This can't be all it's cracked up to be. So Croft press Brady and like, well, what is the right answer? And this is what Brady added. He said, you know, what's the answer? Um, I wish I knew. I love playing football. I love being a quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me I'm trying to find. Now, here we got Brady. And you're like, what possibly more does he need? And he's saying, you know what? I, I want you to know I got the pinnacle of success. And there's something Drastically missing in my life And you might be going well you know That's because I don't think Tom Brady's a Christian He just doesn't know God because that's the answer right Let me Let me ask you this Many of you in this room here You do know God But you are if you're honest Saying about the exact same thing There's got to be something more Than this When we come to the book of Ecclesiastes Solomon is asking that question i mean what is it life about it's got to be more than this and this is what is really staggering solomon third king of israel this guy knew god in fact you find out that he had opportunities like you and i have never had god actually at the beginning of his reign said listen ask me whatever you'd like and i'll give it to you what do you want you want your enemies you want more money what do you want and Solomon was smart. He said, you know what? I'm going to need wisdom. I need wisdom from you if I'm really going to be, work well and lead well. But I want you to know that even if you know God and even if you've blessed, been blessed tremendously, you've been given good gifts like wisdom, you can still walk away from it and really mess your life up. Solomon had wealth beyond measure. There really were no enemies that this guy had. He had everything a person would think you would need in order to be successful, except you know what happened? He just kind of got bored with that, kind of the been there, done that kind of mentality. Next thing you know, he finds himself getting married like 700 times, Three, add 300 concubines to that. And what these women, when they were, most, many of these were political alliances, right? Let's have peace. Why don't you marry my gal? Sure, I'll do that. I'm, I'm in the wedding business. I mean, who is that, like a wedding a week or something? All right. Anyway, it's crazy. And what happened, though, is that these women introduced in his life all sorts of idols. Like, you know, you need to expand your horizons. Listen, there's a lot of gods out there. This whole idea of you worshiping Yahweh, Elohim, let me tell you. And they would introduce their gods, and it stole his heart. This is a let it be a warning. You can know God, and you can have been blessed tremendously, but you can walk away from it. You can be led astray by what we could call the idols of the ages. And that's exactly what Solomon happened to him. His heart was led away. And remember the last time we were in the Ecclesiastes, we actually looked at the world's ideals for finding joy and purpose. We picked it up in chapter 1, verse 12, but if you look at verses 16 and 18, the first ideal that he looked at was intellectualism. Intellectualism, verses 16 through 18, has the idea that the devotion to intellectual pursuits... The idea that in learning, we will ultimately find the answers that give us meaning, peace, joy, and fulfillment. Well, Solomon said, listen, man, I gave myself, I have a sharp mind, and I gave myself fully to understand what was out there. And he concluded, this is grief. You see that verse 18? It leads to increasing pain. So Solomon said, it really isn't gathering intellectual knowledge. It's I'm going to try pleasure, man, because that is one of the most alluring idols out there. I'm going to go for hedonism. Hedonism is the idea that the pursuit of pleasure is the highest good and the proper aim for a human life. Hedonism is not just for college campuses. There are so many people that are controlled by this desire just to please yourself. It is wrapped up in narcissism, and it's the idea, man, if it feels good, don't worry about consequences. Certainly keep God out of the equation. Don't be thinking about morality. What you do is you pursue pleasure with a passion, and that's where you're going to find happiness and joy. Solomon tried that out, and he gave himself. You saw that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and at the tail end of chapter 8, he tried everything there might be and found out it's not all that it's cracked up to be and then the final one said i am going to pursue my career and material wealth and i'm going to give myself fully to it you find it in chapter 2 verses 4 through 8 careerism is the pursuit of professional advancement as one's chief aim no matter what the cost i don't care if it costs me my family my wife my kids My reputation, I don't really care, because it's all about me advancing. I will sell out to the highest bidder. And its second cousin to careerism is materialism. It's the doctrine that material possessions and physical comfort are the most important pursuits in life. And so you know how it goes. you got folks, guys, gals, giving themselves to their career, and they're like, well, I'm doing this for the family, right? And they're just acquiring all these things, and they're sacrificing their kids, and they're sacrificing their morals... And, friends, I want you to know, like Solomon found out, friends, this will lead to disaster. This is vanity. Remember his conclusion, verses 9 through 11? Look at verse 11. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And, behold, all was vanity, meaningless, empty, and striving after wind. And there was no profit under the sun. I will tell you this, these counterfeit idols of the world, they can never satisfy the longing of a human heart. But I can assure you, they have had a negative influence on your life, right? Some of you, you have almost been destroyed by these idols. These voices in your head, in our culture, are so loud. They are so much a part of you. They own you. And they are literally destroying you. And Solomon said, you know what? Hey, I knew about God. And I want you to know I pursued these things full throttle. And they left me empty and vain. There was no profit under the sun. And so you've got to ask the question, is purpose and joy even possible in this world filled with futility? And that's what he's going to explore, beginning in verse 12 in chapter 2. He's going to look at the benefits and problems of wisdom, work. And wealth. what he's going to do is he's going to actually kind of take another look at all that he'd been involved in. And he's going to look at it in light of the certainty of death. Death is the great equalizer. Only the person that's prepared to die is prepared to live. So verse 12, he goes, so I turn to consider wisdom, madness and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I know that one fate befalls them both. He's saying, Well, you know, I, I looked at wisdom, I looked at madness and folly. And he says, man, it is so much better to be wise than to be a fool. Like light is better than darkness. Because, you see, a wise person seeks understanding how things work, how to avoid problems, how to avoid blowing up your life and stepping on landmines. They have better relationships. They're thinking in a broader context. They're trying to understand. They are engaging their mind. That's what makes them wise. They're learning. And he says, there's a lot of benefits to that. The contrast of that is to be an idiot. To be a fool and like, it doesn't matter. I think hedonism sounds really good. It's all about me and my pleasure. I don't really want to engage my mind. I want to think too hard. i am pretty much focused on how I can make myself happy today. These people are always destroying themselves. They are running into one problem after another. They're falling into ditches. They're tripping over things. They're stepping in it. Why? Because they will not engage. They're not wise and fall. And what, what Solomon is saying is like, you know what? it is far better to be wise than to be a fool but look at verse 15 and then i said to myself as is the fate of the fool it will also befall me why then have i been extremely wise so i said to myself this too is vanity for there is no lasting remembrance of the wise men as with the fool inasmuch as in the coming days All will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike died. So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me. Because everything is futility and striving after wind. He's saying, this totally wrecks me. Why have I been so wise and applying myself and learning and, and doing all this good work and building all this stuff? Because you know what? The wise person and the fool, they both die and they're like remembered no more. I mean, you can be excessively wise. But what happens is, you know, when you die, you pretty much fall off off the scene and no one really talks about you. Frankly, being a complete fool probably will garner you more attention than being super wise. Because after all, Hollywood's always looking to make a movie and like, here's a guy who's a complete fool. Let's make a movie about him. And we'll all go see it. Like, oh, there's my life. There we are. And he says, you know what? This is all vanity. And I don't want you to miss verse 17. You see, he said, so I hated life. You ever said that? I hated life. I don't want you to miss this. He doesn't say, so I hate life. But I hated life. This is not his final conclusion. This isn't even his present outlook. Remember, the book of Ecclesiastes is like Solomon opening up his journal, this excursion, this journey to find joy, peace, purpose, happiness. And so he said, you know, I gave myself fully to everything under the sun. Intellectualism, hedonism. I gathered stuff and materialism and I I built a huge career. But you know what? It's all vanity. It's meaningless. And really what happens is you die and it's over. And so in verse, verse 18 and following... What Solomon's going to do, he's going to give you about three warnings to ambitious people who live to achieve greatness. Look at verses 18 and 19. He's going to present that the death of the achiever gives control over the fruit of his or her labor to someone who may just squander it. Look at verse 18. Thus, I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the men who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man, best case scenario, or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. And this too is vanity. So, you know, you apply yourself and you build up whatever you're building up in your resources or whatever you've got going and you and you die and you pass that on well you know if your uh, kids and your grandkids they're wise it's not too bad but if they're a fool this is a total waste and just some of you were thinking about this you need to know that past behavior is a real good indicator of future expectations And if they are going full throttle foolish, you should expect once they get your stuff, they're going to blow their lives up and they're going to create a lot of wreckage. And it's just going to get wasted away in the wind. There's a Jewish proverb that says there are no pockets in shrouds. You just cannot take it with you. And when Solomon is writing this, I'm thinking about this. Perhaps he was thinking about his son, who would take over for him this glorious kingdom, the kingdom of Israel? It's at its pinnacle. Anybody happen to remember his son's name that took over? I bet you didn't name your kid after him, did you? Anybody? Anybody named their kid Rehoboam? Probably not. Why? Because this guy is a complete fool. Solomon perhaps even just saw, man, Rehoboam, man. There's he keeps going to the wrong well for wisdom. He he just doesn't seem to have a grasp. He's you know, maybe this is my fault, but he kind of lost sight of God here. He's, he's a bad leader. He hasn't developed the way he should. Remember what happened when Solomon dies? Guess who takes over? Rehoboam. And it doesn't take Rehoboam very long before he literally destroys the kingdom. He splits it in two. And if you are unfamiliar with what happened, so, so Solomon's counselors, these are wise men, they take the natural role where Rehoboam should be drinking everything they have to say. And he listens to him and he goes, man, I don't, wow, you guys are old. You're not going to make it in the movie. You're not on magazines. You're not cool looking. You're not hip. I need something current, man. I'm going to go find my own friends and they're going to be my new counselors. Yeah, so what if they don't know how to tie their shoes and they dropped out of high school? They're going to be great counselors. And guess what? He listens to them. I, I want you to know something. You are pretty much only as good as the mentors you have in your life. If you don't have any surprise, this explains a lot. If you've got really bad ones and they keep telling you to make wrong decisions, you're like, oh, that sounds good. And you keep blowing up your life one time after another. You are oftentimes only as good as your mentors. And so he buys into these these foolish friends of his and they tell him to make life miserable for the people. I mean, what did you expect? And he splits the kingdom in two. Maybe Solomon saw this and he's like, you know what? It's going to be squandered. you Remember what happened? After he split the kingdom into Egypt, it's like watching all this. Like, nah, that's pretty good. Divide and conquer. We don't even have to do anything to tear themselves up. Hey, pay attention to the United States. And uh, so so you know what he does? The Egypt goes, guess what? You guys are not half strength. We'll come in, and we're going to take over now. And so what Rehoboam did is he paid them all off. Remember, Solomon had all this gold. I mean, gold and silver were like stones. He had all these gold shields in the temple. You know what Solomon did? He gave it all to the Egyptians. Like, here, why don't you take all of our nice stuff, and you go back? Just go back home. And he gave everything to him. And there people would come to Jerusalem like, hey, where are all the gold shields? Like, uh, <laughs> I had to give them away. But I'll make the other ones. But they'll be out of brass. They're still shiny. Doesn't that work for you? And that's what happened. You know what? Your, your kids and your grandkids, they may squander it. And look at verses 20 and 21. You know, the achiever never really benefits from the fruit of their labor. Their heirs do. Look at verses 20 and 21. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, you get it. He like he gave everything to it. He's got skill. Then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity, and it is a great evil. It is when he says great evil, it's like a ruin. It's like a calamity. I mean, by the way. Um, You pass all your stuff off and you think, I'm going to do them a favor by giving them all this money and all these resources. Chances are you're setting them up for a real failure. I've, I've seen this before. People get great inheritances and all they do is it destroys their life. They never learn to apply themselves. They don't really trust God and they're not really smart and they waste it all. And he says, you know what? You really don't benefit from all your labors. Your heirs do. And then look at verses 22 and 23. The achiever has little chance to enjoy his achievements in life. When you read verses 22 and 23, if you're a workaholic, beware, be warned. Verse 22. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. Does that sound like your last week? This too is Vanity. Man, you are giving yourself to it and you're gathering and you're achieving and you're stressed out at night. You can't sleep at night because you're thinking about all the things that potentially will go wrong. And you're fighting all these battles and having all these conversations, most of which will never happen. And you are totally worn out. And he says it is painful and it is vanity. You know, I'm pretty sure that Solomon was a type A kind of guy and I can kind of relate to that. I've i got some tendencies in that direction. not always good there. And he's like a lot of a lot of Americans, you know. Man, we're going to work, 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 work. When we go on vacation, we're going to take our work with us. It's just like, you know, we're in just another setting. It might even be beautiful, but we're so stuck to our phones that we got to look at every 10 minutes. And we brought our computer, and we thought we'd catch up on about 50 reports that we hadn't been able to get to last week. And we take it all with us. Our kids are looking out the van, and they're seeing all these sights. And we're just focused on our stuff. And we never, even if we do take our vacation, we're stressed out. We just work, 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 and what we got. But I, I'm seeing it's all coming together. And if I just do this, and pretty soon what happens is all of a sudden, all the ducks get in a row, and we die. And it's. <laughs> oh, for. I, I worked my entire life to get here. I stressed out at night. I didn't sleep. I looked terrible. And I leave it to others. You need to understand that. And there's been a lot of confusion on this. And this is a historic problem. Uh, you remember like uh, a guy like King Tut? Remember him? Yeah, you know, King Tut thought, you know, like a lot of Egyptians, like, you know what, we're going to take my stuff with me. When I die, I'm going to build rooms, I'm going to build pyramids and stuff like that. And I'm going to have, I'm taking all of my stuff with me. It's going to be awesome and glorious. And so he did. You know, He had all these different rooms. He had all his stuff here because he thought he'd take it with him in the afterlife. I just got news. Uh, It didn't go with him. It is now a traveling exhibit. They have to put security guards to keep little children from playing with that stuff. Get away from here. This is valuable stuff. You can't take it with you. It just, someone else is going to get it. Some museum. And this led Solomon to depression. And think about it. You know, so you've got... You've worked really hard. and you Remember, you've you bought your really nice car. And it's got leather seats. You know, someday someone's going to own that car. And they're going to dump coffee all over it. And they could care less. Doesn't matter to me. But it was really important to you. Someone else has got it. You know, that beautiful home that you've been working on. You make it really look le- really nice. You know, here in Waco, there's a strong possibility that it's going to end up getting painted green and yellow. And... It's going to be rented out by some college freshmen who will take care of it for you. And you're like, it's good that you can't see it because it's going to make you very unhappy. You know those $200 pair of shoes that you got? You know how you just set them out there and you're just like, you're giddy, just looking at them? Oh, this is awesome. Maybe you've warmed to church today and they look really good. But I want you to know that someday they're going to just end up at Goodwill and they're going to be someone's Halloween costume. It's going to happen. It's just, it's gone. Or, you know, you know that land, you purchased that land, you know, this is going to stay with the family forever. It's going to be awesome. You know, we're, uh, we're facing a problem here, doing a lot of discussion. Uh, we need a regional garbage dump, and, and your land just might end up being that way. And that's where all the trash is going to be dumped. And what Solomon is doing, he's realizing, listen, man, you can, you can invest it, you can sink it into real estate. But the moment you take your last breath, it's gone. You do not own it. You don't control it. In fact, you never did in the first place. You thought so. And what Solomon is doing is he is building the tension. He wants you to feel the full import. He wants you to be at a point of depression. Friends, if you were just listening to this like, oh, that's all nice and stuff like that. And I just can't wait to get back to my stuff. Friends, you're missing it. Until you come to the end of yourself and actually believe that the idols of this world will not satisfy my heart, you're just going to buy into the system. You're going to keep pursuing it. Solomon wants to say, you've got to come to the place where you are depressed at what the world has to offer. Because God has something far better. You see, when we come to verses 24 through 26, you're going to find the blessings and perspective of a God-centered life. I, I want you to know, before we hit these verses... Some of you are going to go home today, and you are going to say to yourself, I wish I would have studied and read these verses many years ago. My life would look actually quite different than it does today had I actually seen what you have in these verses. Let's take a look at it, verse 24. Solomon gives the first major conclusion First of six in the book of Ecclesiastes. Therefore, verse 24, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. He says there's nothing better in this world of futility, in this world of trouble. You can have joy because God actually gives you joy. Notice what comes from his hand. He says, God gives you the ability to do this. To take what you're eating and what you're drinking and even your work itself and to say that it is good. To see the goodness. You see, God wants you to see genuine meaning, satisfaction, and enjoyment in even the very simple things in life. Like your food and what you're drinking. And to find value and meaning and enjoyment in your work because it's a from the hand of god this is a figure of speech but what he's saying is that god is gracious and because he's gracious by nature he gives and he gives you these things and he wants you to be able to say this is good there is there is something enjoyable about this that is from the hand of god and Verse 25, I don't know if you, mine's underlined and marked because this is such a key verse. If you've missed this, you have missed it. Look at verse 25. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Did you see that? You can't actually have delight and pleasure and enjoyment apart from God but our world and our culture says the exact opposite. you got to get God out of the equation. God's a killjoy. You listen to God. You read the Bible. You're All of a sudden you're going to adopt values and morals that are going to quelch fun. I mean, after all, you got to get God out of the equation. Get God out of school. Don't think about God. Try to avoid church. If it's raining, oh, you might melt. Don't show up. Because what we're, Satan wants to do is to keep you from actually knowing God and enjoyment. God says, you want enjoyment? It cannot exist apart from me. This is so profound and so very powerful. I mean, he is the one that gives delight and pleasure. I mean, even thinking about like eating and drinking. These are just so ordinary. Most people just, you know, you're not even enjoying your food. You're literally inhaling it. You're just stuffing your mouth. You're just drinking and you're not even hungry. You're just like like a machine. God wants you to enjoy it. Every bite. And he even gives you the ability to enjoy it. I mean, think about it. He gives you appetite, digestion. Can you imagine if you couldn't digest your food? That'd be unpleasant, wouldn't it? He gives you sight, hearing, smell, memory, health, sanity. All of these are all these pleasurable experiences of life. He gives them, not that you will fixate and focus focus on the pleasure, but that you will recognize and focus and rejoice in the God who gives such plentiful And good gifts. And this is the first of six conclusions in the book of Ecclesiastes that underscores the importance of accepting life as the gift from God and enjoying it in God's will. And what Solomon is doing is he's driving home this point. Not only are the blessings that come in our life, they're from God, but the ability to enjoy them. It's God's gift to us. Not only the blessings, but the enjoyment. Like, for instance, the Jewish people read the, the book of Ecclesiastes at the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. They just actually had it this last week. Every fall, sometime between September and October, they have it. The Feast of Tabernacles, to focus on God's gracious and, how, and to be thankful. Do you know they read the book of Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes, why? Because it is to show them that there is no enjoyment apart from God. In fact, life is empty without God. It is why that if you are a Christian, why you actually pray before you eat. It's not like, well, Christians are supposed to do this. No, it is to thank God, to invite God into the experience so that you can actually enjoy. You realize, wow, you know, this burrito that I'm just about ready to eat. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. And all of a sudden, God enters into the experience, and you can truly experience the pleasure and joy that God intended. He wants you to do so. I mean, think about um, your paycheck. Some of you are actually getting paychecks. Good job. And And it's great. Some of you, it's automatic deposit, and you don't even really think about that. I would like to challenge you. Every time you get paid, what if you thank God for that, Lord? Wow, thank you. You're gracious. This is far more than I deserve, right? I'm Pretty much most of us could say that, right? Some of you are totally embarrassed, like, wow. I know, but wow. Thank you, Lord, for your paychecks and your provisions, your positions and your pleasures. When we enter into a God-centered life, we thank him for these things and we then can really enjoy them he intends for you to do that god's not a killjoy he wants you to have joy and pleasure but it can't be apart from him that's what he says in verse 25 and and then look at verse 26 in case you missed it for to a person who is good in his sight he is given wisdom and knowledge and joy the person that is good they're in their right relationship with god but they also have the right heart toward god it's not the well, I intellectually believe in God. I mean, look at the world, a lot of organization. It makes sense to believe in God. Check intellectually. No, the person that believes not only fully engages in their mind and believes, it's their heart. I trust and I delight in God. I know him. I trust him. And I actually have the right heart toward him. I want to be pleasing to him. I want to go in his ways. I want to enjoy God for the fullest. I understand that's why I'm made. And he says... If you're good in his sight, and by the way, it's he that decides, not you. Good in his sight, he has given, look what he gives, wisdom, skill for living, knowledge, which is understanding. And he gives, please don't miss this, he gives joy. You know who should be the most joyous, pleasure-filled, uh, delight-oriented people in the world? You don't know. No, that's the problem. It's Christians. Why? we know God. God is at the center and he wants us to enjoy life. I mean, there are so many Christians that are just like, we're, we're like running around and we've got indigestion. We rarely smile. And, and what God wants is, I want you to have me in all of your experiences. There's no pleasure apart from me. So have this God-centered life. And notice he gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Walt Kaiser said this. Perhaps the finest commentary in the book of Ecclesiastes was written by this Hebrew scholar. All the things that we call the goods of life, health, riches, possessions, position, sensual pleasures, honors and prestige slip through our hands unless they are received as a gift from God. And until God gives people the ability to enjoy them and obtain satisfaction from them, God gives that ability to those who begin by fearing him, that is believing him. Remember how the book ends? Those who fear God, they obey. These are the ones that are pleasing to Him. And God gives all these gifts. He even gives the gift of enjoyment. And He wants you to enjoy life to its fullest. But I want you to know, if you uh, don't put God at the center, you have a very different outcome. God wants you to enjoy your homes and your families and your car if you've got one and that steak dinner that you had last night. He, your, the portfolio that you have, all these things... Recognize he's given to you, but he wants to be at the center of them. It evokes gratitude. There's a heart to want to glorify him. But if you will not have God that way, there is an alternative, and it's found in verse 26. It is not so. Do you see that? For the sinner. You see, for the person whose goodness sight, he's given wisdom, knowledge, and joy while to the sinner. He is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This, too, is vanity and striving after wind. If you are not going to be a sinner saved by grace, you're going to be in the category of a sinner. What is a sinner? Someone who misses the mark. They do not fulfill the aim. They fall short. You and I, whether you recognize this or not, we are created for God, by God, to know God and to enjoy him. If you won't have that, then what happens? You're in the category of a sinner. That means you missed the mark. Not only does, you know, sometimes you think like sinner, like you have to do all these sort of of heinous things. There are a lot of sinners that really try to modify their their behavior. They don't do a lot of really crazy stuff. They just won't have God in the equation. It doesn't matter if you're the reckless, crazy sinner, or you're like, well, I'm just going to avoid God. You've missed the mark of why God's created you. And notice what he says. You know, he may just take all your stuff. He's going to let you gather it and collect it so that he may give it to the one who's good in his sight. And I want you to know a life lived apart from God is like the text says, vanity and striving after the wind. You might find that hard to imagine, but I want you to know that this whole passage speaks of God's sovereignty. Notice he's the one who gives. He's the one who decides who's good. And he's the one, even if you are a... I'm a god objector kind of person. God is so in control that he can actually have you develop all these resources, and then he might just give it to someone who is good in his sight. You're like, whoa, that's pretty heavy duty. Has that ever happened before? Well, just think about Israel's history. Remember when they were uh, in Egypt on their extended vacation there, and things all turned out bad? Next thing you know, they ended up slaves. Remember that? And life was hard on them, and they had to make bricks without straw. I mean, I couldn't make bricks with straw And they had to make it without it It was tough And it was rough And they had these masters And they are beating them And working them to death You Remember that? But You know, when God just said You know, enough is enough And he brought clarity as to who he is And all these false gods That Egypt were worshipping Were no gods at all When they left town Did you know they left With all of the plunder Basically of Egypt? I mean, the people that one day Were beating him The next day are like Please take all of my finest stuff You like my nice clothes? I'd like to give them to you you know, we really don't need all this gold. Please take all these. And they gave it to him. They didn't, the Egyptians didn't find that they were stolen by the Israelites. They actually gave it to them. What's going on there? God said, you know what? Time's up. We're going to put this stuff to good use. Thanks for building it up. I'm transferring it to my people. If you look at Israel's history, the spoil that they, they took from their many conquests. In fact, the temple, most of its wealth came, came from David's conquest. What was going on there? God said, okay, you build it up, and now I'm going to transfer it to my people, those who are good in my sight. You see, uh, until you come to the place where you recognize that uh, you're finite and there is no meaning in life apart from knowing God, you're going to miss it, and you're going to come to the conclusion, my life is vain, striving after the wind. If you're like, Grant, will you just tell me what my purpose in life is? Can you do it in one sentence? I can't. Our purpose is to live in his presence. Our purpose is to live in his presence. Enjoyment in life comes from actively enjoying your relationship with God. What we need to do is to find God more in our equation. We need a more proactive, God-centered approach to our life. But I want to just ask you, are you enjoying life or are you merely enduring it? And this is a pretty big question. Uh, I want you to know that uh, for me, I have certainly just endured some of life, especially its difficulties. Uh, I think it was probably a combination from uh, hard work ethic that I trained by my folks in um, and also learning how to be a runner. I remember being introduced in high school, learning how to run and puke at the same time. Those are skills that have served me well with one problem. If you do not have God at the center of your life, there's no enjoyment. You may learn how to endure pain, but God wants us to learn how to rest in, trust in and even enjoy him. You know, so often we think of like pleasure and it's kind of like one of those like little uh, soap bubbles, you know, and we see it flipping by and like, man, if I could just touch that, that'd be glorious. And as soon as you touch it, it's gone. That's how pleasure is. I want you to know that satisfaction is a gift from God, just like salvation. You and I, we get it. We're sinners. We need help. We need salvation. God provides it. But did you know that satisfaction is also a gift from God? If you really want enjoyment in life, you have to be intentional and proactive of involving and engaging God as you go through your days. He wants you to enjoy the fullness of relationship. And God so greatly wants us to experience his joy in life that he actually gives us his son. We understand that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the atonement. He's going to pay for the sins. He's going to die on a cross. He's going to rise from the grave and authenticate to the world. He's God and sins are paid for. Believe in him. You got forgiveness. We get that. What we don't get is that God wants us to experience joy pleasure, delight, and satisfaction. You're like, you got a verse on that? Sure, let's go with something we probably all know. Remember Romans 6.23? For the wages of sin is death, right? Ecclesiastes 2.26, while the sinner. He misses it, it's all vain, right? But the free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Eternal life. Not just eternal forgiveness, Eternal life, life that never ends. We get the quantity part. What we miss is the quality. God wants us to have life with God, a life of enjoyment, enjoyment of him, enjoyment of his gifts. And he makes that possible by sending Christ so that when we believe in Jesus, we can, through a Christ-centered life, really have joy as we go through it. You see, joy and purpose are found in Jesus. You don't have to, Ecclesiastes 2.26, stay a sinner. But that is your choice. You can become a worshiper of God. And cultivating a God-centered heart is essential to joy and purpose in life. So how do you have a God-centered heart in our world? Let's just kind of take, like, for instance, your intellectual pursuits. Our souls find no satisfaction until our pursuit of wisdom leads to worship. we got a lot of folks, students involved in academia, real smart people, highly educated. I want you to know that until your pursuit of wisdom leads to worship it may lead to a lot of vanity intellectual pursuits become worship when they're motivated by um, i just want to pass this on to you the glory of god why you do what you do to the glory of god for the improvement and well-being of humanity and third for the building bridges for the gospel what we need we need more christian academics But I'm talking about the hardcore, real deal, sold out for Jesus, fully engaging their mind kind of Christian, doing it for his glory, looking to improve humanity and looking to build bridges for the gospel. We need men and women like this. Let's take your work. Work becomes worship when we do it in his strength with gratitude for his gifts and guidance. And we do it for his glory. There's a guy by the name of Sean Acor. He's actually he grew up in Waco. A Waco boy done good. Uh, He went to Harvard for 12 years. He's a best-selling author. He's a researcher. He gave a TED Talk that I listened to, and I watched it. Pretty insightful, very interesting. It was titled, The Happy Secret to Better Work. The Happy Secret to Better Work. And he basically said, you know, success will bring happiness, so we all think. And I would imagine most of us think that. If I'm successful, I'm going to be happy, right? He says, actually... Read the reverse is true happiness leads to success when you believe that your behavior matters when you learn how to be grateful that you develop some people around you and you learn how to handle your stress what happens is is that you actually start moving forward You get a more positive mindset and you then are freed up to become more creative. And people that are more creative and higher, have higher productivity and more effective, not only more uh, more happy, but they find to be more successful. And I don't believe, know if this guy's a Christian or not. It's interesting. In October 2010, Texas Monthly Magazine, um, they did an interview with Sean Acor, And they threw this question out. Happiness is a very simple concept. You go to school, land a job that pays well, find a spouse, and then you're happy, right? Don't we all think that? This is what he said. That's the formula for happiness that most of us are taught in our schools, workplaces, and families. It's the happiness we're sold in commercials and in movies. It also is the very reason we see so many unhappy people in modern society. Think about it. Every time we buy something or have a victory, instead of being happy, we merely change the goalposts of what success looks like. You got into a good school, now you got to get good grades, or you won't be happy. You get good grades, now you have to get a good job. Get a good job? Now you have to get a promotion. Get to be the CEO. Well, now your kids have to do well in school. If happiness is on the other side of success, we will never reach it because it always is just over the horizon. He says this is the formula for success that we are taught. And even teach our kids if you work harder, then you'll become more successful. And if you're more successful, then you'll be happy. Ta-da! But research. And the fields of positive psychology and neuroscience reveals that we have the formula precisely backwards. When our brains are happy and positive first, then our success rates rise and we are able to work faster and more intelligently. And then he goes on to say neuroscience has confirmed what our grandparents often told us. Happiness is about the journey, not the destination. You want happiness and joy and the journey? Ecclesiastes 2.25 cannot be done apart from him. How about our possessions? You know, when we enjoy the gifts and the giver of all good things, we express worship and experience the joy of our father, the joy that our father is intended for his children. I want you to know that all your stuff, when I think about your resources, it's either a tool or an idol. It's either a tool or an idol, whether it be your phone, your car, your boat, whatever it might be. So let me just give you just some practices of joy filled people, people that take this text to heart. One practice is that they're thankful. I'll tell you this if you can be thankful for three specific things, whether you write it, say it, pray it, for 21 days, this will change your outlook. You see, gifts, if they're truly to be enjoyed, you have to express gratitude. Gratitude leads to joy. Gratitude to God really is the key to joy in life. So learn to be thankful. Another practice of joy filled people is that they're gracious. They're putting in others' interests first. They're encouraging. They're generous. They're not clingy. They're, they smile. They express care. And let me give you a third practice of joy-filled people. They're content. They're at peace with God. They're at peace with themselves. Big. They can be at peace with others. And friends, when we learn to be gracious and content and thankful, then the simple things of life, we receive these from God. We thank Him. And we experience the pleasure he's intended. So I want you to do this. Just picture like your hands open. Now, some of you, like, you'll do this. And if I ask you this, like, oh, I can't do that. Especially in church, someone might see me or something like that. So you just picture it in your mind. This is the expression of saying, God, everything that I've got, you've put in these hands. And I recognize it's from you. The the problem with human behavior is like we receive something. Education. We got some resources. We got this, and we're, we're clingy. Like oh, I gotta hold on to it because someone might take it. And, so, and we're and we're we're like this, right? And this not only contorts our hands, but it contorts our souls. We try to grab onto this stuff. Really, this is the approach to life. It's to say, God, with open hands, what I have, I've been given. What I have, Lord, I, I want you to use for your intended purposes. These resources are really yours. I'm just a manager. Open hands says, Lord, thank you. I am yours. And cultivating this God-centered heart is essential to joy and purpose in life. And friends, this is what we are made for. Let's pray. Lord, an amazing passage of Scripture. How powerful it is to know that you want us to experience joy and it cannot be done apart from you. So Lord, for the person who is here who has never trusted in Jesus, would they turn from self and sin and experience the eternal life that comes from trusting in you? And Father... For all of us that do know you, would you cultivate joy by just this rich relationship with Jesus to know your goodness, to express gratitude, to see you at work, to experience the joy of walking you with you in this life for our joy, for your joy, for your glory in Jesus name. Amen.